Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and in September of 2015, John interviewed Michael McCausland. So much has changed in Mike's life that I felt like we needed to record an update, but not necessarily tell his whole story again. So I excerpted Mike's interview with John, and then tomorrow we'll hear my recorded update with Mike. I started out working in the nuclear power industry, very interesting set of circumstances that brought me to that uh, to that world. But I ended up going through all of their training and licensing and was licensed as a reactor operator and then a senior reactor operator to run nuclear power plants. And uh, I loved the work. It was quite challenging. But... Um, you know, it was uh, it was very demanding. I, I went from uh, running a nuclear plant into the training department, started designing training programs, and then eventually started my own consulting company in 1985 called McCausland Associates Incorporated, or MAI for short. MAI over the years then began to focus on uh, change management and culture transformation because the power utility industry started deregulating, and we had to go from a an entitlement mentality to a competitive environment. Very difficult to do uh, in a power plant or a, a workforce where you have a thousand or more employees. So I did that for a number of years, still do it even to today. Love the work. I got into it because I was able to help people. Most change initiatives cause a lot of pain. We saw a lot of downsizing initiatives where people were laid off and fired and workforces traumatized. And so I got into the work in, in, uh, in the change management industry for that reason. I just loved doing it. 103 nuclear plants in the United States, and I've been able to consult at about 55 of them. So it's been an interesting journey. But, you know, as the journey went on, you get to a point in your life where you want to do something to give back. And I know there's a lot of friends of mine that are in that position, a lot of people that I've talked to that want to help and are not sure how to do that. And that's really what drove and sparked my interest uh, in the humanitarian space. I, uh, I had a scripture that I was praying in the mountains in 2001 in August, and I, God clearly gave me James 1.27. True religion undefiled before the Father is visiting widows and orphans in their distress and keeping oneself unstained from the world. And at that point, I really knew that God had a call on my life to reach out to the less fortunate. I had, had been doing some international missions work with a lot of faith-based groups since the early 90s, but um, we felt that that was a strong call to engage on a larger scale. And we formed an organization called Humanitarian International Services Group, HISG, the day before 9-11. The day before 9-11. The day before 9-11. We had our first board meeting and, of course, woke up the next morning and the world had changed. So, you know, leading up to this, you're on the mountaintop, you're praying, God gives you a verse. Was there, was there something stirring in you that was moving you from consulting and doing change management at very large companies toward what's next in your life, the next new thing? Well, you know, we, as I said, we'd been working in the faith-based arena, the missions world and the faith-based arena for, at that point, for about eight or nine years. And we had seen so much need out in the world, especially overseas and developing economies and emerging countries, and we wanted to help people. 
And uh, I never realized how hard it was to help somebody and actually not hurt them. There's a lot of good books out there now, like When Helping Hurts or Dead Aid or Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid or many others that, that even help us now understand that a lot of what we do to try to help people actually hurts them, creates dependency, uh, kills innovation and creativity and productivity. And a lot of people are out there doing things that they really believe because they have a good intention to help are helping people. But the reality is it's actually doing more harm than good. And so, yeah, Mike, what are some good examples of that? Well, I'll give you an example of just how difficult it is to figure it out. Sometimes we were working in a village in Africa and the women were walking an hour and a half uh, each way every day to get water for the village. And so another uh, nonprofit came into the, uh, the village and said, oh, they need water. So they built a well. And uh, when they built the well, it wasn't long after that that the community started falling apart. And you're going, well, what happened? So they, we did some research, and we found that the women, uh, on their hour-and-a-half walk to get water every day each way, spent all the time talking about the problems of the village and working out all their issues. So when they built the well... They actually eliminated the consulting time where the women shared with one another and fixed their problems. So something for us as Westerners and outsiders looking at a simple solution is not always that simple. So are you doing work in the U.S. or is most of your work right now in third world countries? Well, it's a good question. Um, in my for-profit consulting company, McCausland Associates, Inc., MAI, I deal with some of this in the corporate settings. And we've also been asked to bring our nonprofit activities into the United States. So we're currently exploring opportunities, not only in the Denver area, but, but also in other communities around the United States. You know, one of the things that, that we have focused on, because you asked me originally, was there a turning point when I was on the mountain praying? And the idea was that we were business guys that just wanted to help. And of course, it took a long time to understand how to help effectively. I say that it took us, uh, we learned a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. But uh, what we did end up focusing on was two different areas. One was a business development and job creation focus. And we've built a network now in 2,100 countries. We've launched over 2,500 businesses. And 73% of all those businesses that ever started are still running. And the other focus that we ended up getting into, because it was another form of sustainability, was the concept of community resiliency, creating community-based capabilities to prepare for and respond to disaster situations. Because if you're prepared, you fall less and recover faster. Again, community resiliency or sustainability. And most of those resources are within the community so that they don't have to be victims waiting to be rescued if they self-organize their own assets. And so that network now is in 56 countries with about 10,000 badged members. So those are two areas that we focus on internationally for sustainability, but those same two areas we're looking at now bringing into the United States. So are those two separate models based on uh, the needs of that specific culture, or, or do these two approaches coexist, kind of a business development model yeah. and more of a disaster preparedness model? Yeah, they're two different models. We call them principle-based, crowdsourced models. That means that all the players that implement the models have uh, a role in ownership in making the models better. 
They're principle-based, meaning there's certain principles that are adaptable to any culture, any society, and so that they can be uh, implemented anywhere. They get customized in some of the how-tos on the ground. But both models are very principle-based. They're both separate models. We call them decentralized models as well because nobody really owns or controls them. They're owned and controlled by the community. Mm -hmm. There's an advisory council that brings guidance and, and uh, oversight. But, uh, but all the members are autonomous. They have their own organizations. They fund their own initiatives. But then they have a way to work together collaboratively through the network. Because of that, for example, the Disaster Response Network is moving an average of $10 million to $15 million per large event now in goods and services by all these disparate members working together through the network because they have a common language and a common roadmap to work together. So what's and an example so of a done, business that was started? Oh, they're as varied as people are different. For example, somebody in, in Nairobi bought eggs, went out the next day and sold them, and, uh, and sold them for twice as much, went out and bought two dozen eggs, sold them again, and it wasn't long before he had sold so many eggs and milk that he realized that all the street vendors like him um, you know, ran out of product before the end of the day. So he, he took some of his funding and started building a warehouse to support the other street vendors. So they didn't run out of product. They could keep making money. And now he has multiple warehouses and delivery people that delivers to distribution points throughout the city for the street vendors. So, uh, you know, a very different kind of business. There's others that, that, uh, that have done moving companies. There's others that you know, are, are doing babysitting services. I mean, it's just varied in, uh, in how people do microfinance. How do you go in and break that cycle of dependency that so many people are, are you know, it has them stuck? Yeah, let me give you an example of something that we did to give you an idea of how to accomplish that. And, and this is applicable anywhere in the world, but it's the idea of changing the way people look at their circumstances. When uh, with this new course on principles of sustainability, I talk about it as a principle of original design. The idea that God gave each one of us a gift. The gift is not for us. It's to serve others with. And if we can figure out how to serve others with our gift, we can generate income out of that because a worker is worthy of his wages. Another component of that original design concept is the idea that God always gives resources um, and if we can explore our environment to understand the resources, we usually have the solutions to our problems. So let me give you an example. We went into the dumps of Jakarta, which is one of the largest cities in the world, and uh, we asked the people at the dump, what assets do you have? And of course, they looked at us like we were crazy. What do you mean assets? We're at the dump. Nobody's working. We don't have anything. What do you mean assets? And so we said, well, if nobody's working, you must have a workforce that's ready to be employed. And, you know, their mouth kind of dropped open. They looked at us for a minute, and then they shook their head slowly, and they said, yeah, I guess we do have a workforce that's ready to be employed. And we said, well, what other assets do you have? And they said, well, let us think about it. So they went away for a couple days. They came back after a couple days, and they said, look, we live in the dump. There's a lot of plastic here. Maybe we could recycle plastic. Now, at that moment, everything changed. This was their idea. This was not our idea. We didn't give them the solution to their problem. They had looked at their environment. They had looked at their resources from a totally different point of view and saw something that had always been there. They just never saw it. 
And so at that point, we put on a business hat and we said, well, how would you do that? And so we talked them through how that they would recycle plastic. Well, it ended up after that long discussion that we gave them a loan. We didn't give them the money for free. We gave them a loan for $5,000. Now, equivalent, that's about seven years' salary for somebody at the dump. So in the U.S., that'd be, what, uh, $300,000 loan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we gave them that loan, and what they did is they engaged 17 heads of households, so 17 families were impacted. They built a facility with a roof and four concrete bins. They pulled water out of a river with pipe and a pump, and they washed the plastic in the first bin with soapy water, they rinsed it in the second bin. They bundled it in the third bin and dried it out, or dried it out in the third bin, bundled it in the fourth. And they took it off to the recycling factory that was about three kilometers away. It was actually very close. So they ended up paying off that loan in seven months. So but five years of income they earned in seven months. That's correct. And, 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 and what you simply did is you you approach them in a different way. You created self-awareness about their situation and learning so that they noticed things that are already around them that they hadn't seen before. So then it became their idea that they wanted to execute on versus something you're coming in and giving them to work on. Yeah. Can I give you another example? Yeah, love to hear it. More the better. We, uh, we went to uh, the area where the big tsunami had hit in Indonesia in 2004. Remember, 250,000 people died? Yeah. And we went up to the mountains above the village and began to work with the people up there who were rebels and knew that they had been significantly impacted as well and asked them how we could help and serve. And, of course, in a crisis situation, there are acute needs and disaster response. So we do needs assessments and disaster response at times, but we don't do needs assessment for development. We do asset assessments, and they're very different. But I want to show you the evolution. So we went up there and asked them how we could help. They said, well, we need doctors to pull bullets out of our bodies because we can't go to the hospital. Wow. So we sent a team of doctors that pulled bullets for two weeks. They got buckets of bullets out of these people. But what it did was created a significant relationship with them, and they knew we were there to really help them. So we began discussion with the village elders uh, about their life and what they were doing, and they said, look, we want to stop doing what we're doing and being rebels and all that, and we'd like to do something more sustainable. And so we asked them, what assets do you have? So we shifted from you know helping them with a need to looking at development. So, Mike, and it they- sounds like a big focus that you have is really – getting the people to look at local assets. Absolutely. And that's part of that concept of original design. They're always there. We just don't look for them. And so they said, well, we have good fertile land up here. Maybe we could plant crops. So we said, well, what kind of crops? Now, this was over a couple-month discussion. And they ended up with the concept of chili peppers because they could plot it in 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 a piece of ground that was like 12 or 15 by 15, it, it produced four crops a year, and it was high cash value. So what we did is we established a bank with the village elders. And the village elders, we, it was $10,000 bank, and the village elders would loan out to the, uh, the leaders of the community money to establish their chili crop, and that they would have to pay back a quarter of the loan every, uh, every time they, they, they had a crop, which was four times a year. So in a year, the loan was paid off. 
So they started doing chili peppers, and what happened very soon after that is everybody started helping each other. And that's very unusual with those kinds of people up in the mountains. Everybody's fairly independent. Well, they started helping each other. Why did they, they start helping each other? Because they were next in line for the grant from the bank. Or the, not the grant, the loan. If, they, if their neighbors got their crop in and paid their loan back, they were next in line to get the loan. Oh, so I was so going to do one loan at a time, and as soon as it was paid off, I had another loan to give. Yeah, except with the size of the bank, they could do 10 or 12 loans at a time. But it was quite a bit, you know, there's quite a few people in the village. So it was still the fact that if we helped one another, we, you know, more people had access to the loans. And so what happened in, in uh, the not, not long down the road is everybody was doing chili peppers. Well, then they started saying, well, what do we do with the women? And so they started doing women empowerment projects, and they started making things and selling them and doing food production and other, other things for women activities, and pretty soon all the women were working. And then they said, well, now what do we do? And so they started doing village infrastructure projects. They started doing water and sewer and electricity and roads. And so this whole village was being transformed because they had a financial engine for transformation of the community. And it wasn't long before other villages started knocking on their door going, what happened to you guys? And, um, and so they started loaning their bank to other villages and spreading this concept of self-sustainability. Well, we're now about eight, nine years into that project. That $10,000 bank has been recycled over 70 times without a single default loan. That's an enviable track record that every U.S. bank would like to see, wouldn't it? But, it? but an example, again, of looking at your environment, understanding what the resources are, and begin to create that self-sustainability from the gift and the resources God's given you. Well, and that all started with you reaching out, developing a friendship, and, and, and through that, allowing these villagers to look at their resources and their gifts from a very different perspective. Yeah, and that's what really creating sustainability is all about. And really, I think that's what the message of the gospel is all about, is understanding, you know, what God's given us to help others. Be sure to tune in tomorrow to hear my update with Mike. He's going to be talking about his journey from where you just heard to the exciting things he has going on, equipping and connecting entrepreneurs, coaches, and investors through entrepreneurship ecosystems around the world. Super exciting stuff. You're going to love it.